you don't know who that is, that was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous preacher who preached. It took him 232 sermons to get through the book of Ephesians. Uh, we're going to try and go a little quicker. Uh, you know, I wasn't thinking about this when Rusty and I planned to do that as an uh, opening uh, audio track and video. It was that uh, it's kind of hard to follow Martin Lloyd-Jones in preaching. <laughs> I was just sitting here thinking, wow, it sets ourselves up. (laughs) So here we come to the book of Ephesians. Amen. Finished Nehemiah, praise God. And here we come to the book of Ephesians. As I think about the book of Ephesians, I'm humbled that God has led us to work through this book at this time. In the life of our church. And at this point, and even my ministry as a teacher and preacher of God's Word, I'm humbled to work through the book of Ephesians. You know, all of God's Word is so special. Proclaiming great truths of the One who created us and speaking the very words of God. And yet, I believe there are certain books in the Bible that are just immensely packed in a unique way with unsearchable riches of God's truth and God's goodness, who He is. Books where, where God condescends in a very special way to our level and gives us a taste of who He is. Places where He begins to describe to us His glory and His majesty. You know, I believe one of the chief reasons for our failure to worship God with every breath that we have is because we've been so captivated by the wonderful glory of God's creation, namely ourselves, and in the process fail to explore the infinite majesty of our God. I think we get so wrapped up in who we are, and we fail to, to explore the greatness and the majesty of our God. And Nehemiah, I think, recognized this in his opening prayer in verse 5. He said, I And I said, O Lord God of what? God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. He recognized, Nehemiah recognized Him as the great and awesome God. He was the maker and keeper of covenants. And He was the one and only with steadfast love. In our day, the great, and, and not just our day, but since the beginning of time, even before the creation of the earth, as Lucifer thought these very same things, that the great king and the great majesty is often ourselves. We've become so, as, as Lloyd-Jones said, self-absorbed, self-promoting, and egocentric. I think about that application in our day. We go to work exclusively often to promote our way of living. We raise kids to make ourselves happy. We choose churches to tickle our fancy. We become angered when we become the question of sin. You know, even in our theology, we begin with ourselves and end with God often. We begin with our understanding of the way we believe and perceive ourselves to be, and then from that point move forward to developing what we think about God. 
Think about this for just a second. Think about the idea of bad things happening to good people. How do we often begin to think through that? I just want to give you an example of beginning with ourselves and ending with God and the development of what we believe about God. So we often begin with, I'm a good person. What I do is good, and the motivation by which I do it is good as well. This is normal thinking for us. I mean, unless I'm the only one in this room, I tend to begin with thinking of myself as a good person and working out from there. But really what's happening, even in my own life, is I've defined good in such a way that fits the way I want to live. That's why Adam and Eve did in the garden. They, wanted to, they didn't just want to define good, but they wanted to define good in such a way that was congruent with the way they desired to live life. This is, this is how we begin, we think. So then what happens then is when a bad thing comes along, we think, how could God be good in this situation? How could God be grand in this situation? Where have we begun? We began with our definition of good and how we would define it, and then now am imposing that on our understanding of God. Now, let's maybe take this a little more practical. More practical. We may not verbally question His goodness. Like, for many of us, we go, oh no, God is still good no matter what happens. But my question would be, then why don't you rejoice in God's goodness when the bad does happen? Functionally, you don't believe God is good. Why? Because we've defined good in the way that sustains our high view of ourselves often. So I just want to give us an example of how we begin with ourselves, or we begin and then end with God, and so then end up defining God wrongly. And there's much that we're going to talk about in Ephesians, that if we begin with ourselves, we're not going to be happy with the God that's described in these pages. You know, if the great king and majesty is ourselves, we will most certainly lose sight of the great majestic beauty and glory of God. There's a few more comments on this same thought. You know, his majesty and beauty has dwindled down, has, has been whittled down so much in our day that's lost so much of its luster and brilliance. We say, come to God, say a prayer with the word Jesus in it, and you should be saved from hell. There's so much more to God's glory than just that. We have so developed a world where a partial gospel is worshipped in a fruitless Christian life. We have a partial gospel. Jesus died on a cross, so I need to pray a prayer so I can avoid heaven. There's so much more. We have a partial life where God is only concerned with changing my eternal destiny. And so the gospel has nothing to do with the rest of my life. It's up to me and legalism and, and doing what's right. And, and that along with Jesus and the, and the cross, that will get me to heaven. And there's so much more to the gospel than that. So much more to life than that. I understand many of us in this room grew up and even arguably still today, have the partial gospel. And others in this room 
may say, I don't, I don't believe this. I don't believe I have a partial gospel or that I'm applying it partially in my life, but, but functionally live this way, though. And my question is this, how, how robust is your understanding of the gospel? Like, when you, if I was to ask you just to put on a piece of paper, explain the gospel, what could you put down? What passages could you cite? What understanding? How could you explain it? Now, I understand none of us will ever have a whole gospel, I think, till we reach heaven. But headed towards that is what we're talking about. How robust is your understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ? How deep are your understandings of God's redeeming work? How would you describe that? Explain it. You know, they say you don't really understand something until you can explain it to a child. But how deep are your understanding? How, how deep are your understandings of the purpose of God's redeeming work? And then thinking about the gospel and its application to life, how invasive is the gospel in your life? I'm using that invasive in a positive sense, but how invasive is the gospel in your life? What is the, think about it this way with me, what is the governing body in your life? What governs your life? What you do, how you act, what you think. Has anybody ever ridden on go-karts at like a go-kart track, right? Yeah, this is pretty fun. You know, on those, they have this thing called like a, a governor. Like it governs the speed at which you can drive. And so that's not fun, particularly when you've ridden them when they don't have those on them. And then you go to a, you know, a track and you're like, oh, yeah, all these city folk, yeah, they have fun on these things. because. But for us who grew up in the country, you know, you got to run, you know, full go as fast. So as we were doing some work on our backyard on the drain around the office building, I noticed as I'm standing on one of those like front loaders, you know, those, it's kind of like a bobcat except a little bit smaller and you stand on it and ride it. It's coolest, one of the funnest things in the world. And I noticed on the throttle that there was a governor on it. And I debated and, and looked on taking that off. And then I thought I probably should not do this with a rented piece of equipment that costs a lot of money. But it's a government. It, 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 it shapes the speed at which it drives. It shapes the, then the danger that could happen. Obviously, if you can only go 15 miles an hour, that's a whole lot safer than maybe going 40 miles an hour. Or if you're driving a big piece of machinery, you could either stop before you tear down the building or stop after you've ran it into the wall. The governor makes a big difference. It changes the path and the course of which you take, the effectiveness of the brakes, all these things. But when you think about the invasiveness of the gospel in your life, how invasive is it? Or is it just something that you keep in a little book on the shelf during the week? I mean, none of us want to do that. But what do we do? How much of your life is bathed in the prayer of thy kingdom come, thy will be done? Right? I think, you, I think you can only mean that to the extent to which the gospel has invaded your life. So as we approach Ephesians, as we approach Ephesians, our entire desire over all of this is that we would be whole gospel 
whole life people. That's, that's the umbrella that we want to hang everything for the next year, year and a half on. You're going to get tired of the phrase, whole gospel, whole life. Obviously, there's a lot to explore in the gospel, and there's a lot to apply the gospel to. So we will not cease or not fail to have anything to talk about underneath that umbrella. But we will talk about whole gospel and whole life. How are we being whole gospel people? How are we living whole gospel, whole life? I'm not talking about whole foods. I don't care whether you shop at the new Fresh Time here in Beaver Creek. You can eat Taco Bell if that's what you want to eat. We're going to talk about whole gospel, whole life. What we see in Ephesians overall, okay, so this is what I'm attaching. I think the main theme of the book of Ephesians is God's grand redemptive work. God's redeeming work, both in the gospel and then subsequent, and we'll get to that in just a few moments. So all the major facets, pieces, parts of the diamond that is God's grand redemption, I think is represented here in Ephesians. For example, God's mercy in salvation, God's grace, God's justification, God's sanctification, God's glorification, God's sovereign choosing, God's regeneration, etc. These are all pieces and facets of God's grand redemptive work. These are all parts of what we're going to call the whole gospel. And in all the areas of life, I think Paul very uniquely here helps us see the application of the gospel to all of life by breaking it into three primary relational categories. Relationship with God, with believers, with unbelievers. So what we'll see is a whole life impacted by a whole gospel. So all that kind of comes down to this, the goal for the series that you would continue on this journey, that you pick up the pace on this journey, that you would run this journey toward a whole gospel that impacts your whole life. That's our big goal for the next year. The goal for today, right? The goal for today is that you'd be encouraged to begin this journey. That you would see God's work, just get a taste of what God has done. And that you would understand that God's plan for you as His redeemed children, those of you who are followers of Jesus and you're certain of that, God's plan for you is that you would understand the whole gospel and that you would live it wholly in your life. All right. So a couple points of narration as we jump into the text. What we're going to do is each week, because we're going to break it down pretty small, I'm going to read a bigger chunk than what I'm actually going to preach on, okay? So this week, as I've gotten many smiles and laughter over the past week, where are we going on Sunday? So verses 1 and 2, and then, then, then the smile or the laugh comes. Uh, we're going to be in the intro, uh, and we're not going to get out of that, but we're going to read the first kind of section, so again, so that we have a little bit of context there. And the other point of, of narration I want to give you as well is that 
I'm primarily preaching from verses 1 and 2, but I'm going to reach into the rest of the text, at least in a thematic way. So I want to pull in, as we talk through verses 1 and 2, as basically Paul is, I think Paul is, what we need to think about is what is Paul getting ready to say as he's introducing himself and, and, and as he is greeting the Ephesians. He's getting ready to say to these people all of this stuff. And I want to try to just thematically summarize what he's going to say to them as we think through verses 1 and 2. Okay? Let's read 1 through 14. We'll come back, verses 1, and begin there. I want to, even for the sake of time, I still want to read this slowly for us. Again, in verse 1, if you have your Bible, I encourage you to have that open and follow right along, and even as we're only going to get through two verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Just for us, just for us, I just have to say this. It's hard for me not to stop and preach, okay? Like, I am just like, I gotta say something, I gotta say something. No, I can't. I have a year to do that. I have until Jesus comes back to do that. That's what we should say. All right, okay, so I just had to say that so you can pray for my urges. All right, verse 4, we'll go back to Sahara. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. To the praise of His glory, let's pray. Father, I pray that we would see just the marvelous truth about who You are, Father. And we would see You as majestic and worthy of our worship this morning. And Father, we would fall more in love with You today than we were when we walked in. And then as we meditate and think upon these truths and apply these over these next few days and this next week, that that we would walk away each time loving you more. Father, this is only something that you can do in our desperate hearts. Only you can bring about the worship of yourself. Father, I pray that you would do that this morning. It's in your son's name. Amen. Verse 1. Paul 
an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. First big thought. The whole gospel comes from the perfect will of God. The whole gospel comes from the perfect will of God. Again, even in this first point, you kind of see, and I think it makes sense as we go, but I am seeing this perfect will of God here in verse 1. The whole gospel is what's getting ready to come, like he's going to speak on these things. But he is setting the stage for this conversation about the whole gospel, and he's establishing here in verse 1 that what he's getting ready to say is from the perfect will of God. So Paul is the author of the book by God's will. And this is no small matter, right? It's important that these glorious truths that we are reading this morning even are parts of the grand design of a Redeemer. It's part of His plan, His will. And what I want us to see is that God, if you're looking for a sub-point, God sent this word that he's about to teach us through his apostle Paul. And so, by implication, if this has come from the will of God, what does the will of God require from the people of God? Submission to, loving of, following. What Paul says should spur loving of God, what he is getting ready to say. Understand that these are words, these words in this book apply to us. I want us to think through a little bit of how do, we, how do we apply these words to us? How do we understand these words and how do they apply to us? A little bit of an interpretation thinking here. First of all, Ephesians. Some of you may not know this, but in, in some of the earlier manuscripts and different, you know, if you take a look at different texts of earlier manuscripts, some have the word Ephesus in it, or the Ephesians in it, and some, some don't. Either way, I think it still has great application for us, but this was a highly uh, circulated book written, or a letter written by Paul, and uh, probably went to this area and was worked around these people. I mean, there's certainly reason for us to, to believe that. And, but I want to think about how do, we, how do we understand this? How do we, how do we take what Paul says and apply this. And, and we'll get to flesh this out more as we go, but I just want to briefly prep us for how do we understand and apply this book written 2,000 years ago to these specific people. First of all, if it's declaring, if something Paul writes is declaring a truth about God or his creation, then we should seek to understand it, believe, and live by faith according to it. That's pretty easy. We're supposed to, we should do this whether we like it or not, whether it makes sense or not. Right? So we live in an age where everything's going to make sense to us and it's going to make us feel good. And that's not an interpretive requirement when it comes to the Scriptures. Let me give you an example. In Ephesians 2.5, you, you can look there if you want to. But he says, we were dead and he made us alive. We were dead and he made us alive. That's pretty important. That means that you and I did not have the ability to come to life. We didn't have the ability to say a prayer. 
As the one Christian rap song goes, God didn't just throw us a life preserver so that we could then grab a hold of it. No, we were a swollen corpse on the bottom of the ocean floor, he says. And God dove to the bottom of the ocean floor to rescue us. Ephesians 2.5 says we were dead and we smelt like it. Oh no, Shailen said that. We were dead and he made us alive. Next one, next idea. So that's if he's declaring the truth about God or his creation, we seek to understand it, believe it, and live by faith. Next, if he is giving us a principle requiring behavior, then we must obey it, but the expression may look different. Here's what I want to say. Sometimes the behavior, the, the living out of this command may look different in a different culture. For example, later on he's going to get to talking about bond servants. You know, and earthly masters, slavery, that kind of thing in verse 6. I'm sorry, chapter 6. You know, that's going to look, the application, that's going to look different. The behavioral response to that's going to look different. But it still applies to us, but it's going to look different for us today. All right, so enough on the, what we call hermeneutic side of things. Just wanted to throw that out there. But God, what we need to see is that God sent word, sent this word through his apostle Paul. The next thing I want us to see underneath this, the whole gospel comes from the perfect will of God, is that Paul was a teacher of Christ Jesus. Don't miss this. I, I, I know, I mean, I'm guilty of this too. We read through a book of the Bible, we just go right through the greetings and just boom, right on into the passage. We don't miss that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. A teacher of Christ Jesus. He's a teacher of the good news that is Christ Jesus. The gospel of him. So what Paul is getting ready to say comes from the gospel or describes the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything that we are about to learn flows to and from the gospel of Jesus Christ. These doctrines, these principles are pieces of the good news of Jesus Christ. So if we want to be a whole gospel people, Paul is about ready to blow your mind when it comes to what the gospel is. Next, Paul was a teacher, kind of alluded to this already, by the sovereignty of God. But I want to highlight the sovereignty of God. This is a major theme in the book of Ephesians. Sovereignty is a major theme in the study of salvation, or soteriology as we call it. Grand redemption. Here we will ponder the sovereignty and majesty of God displayed in that sovereignty. You know, the age of our day is much too concerned with its own will, with its own sovereignty. And we're so captivated by our own ability to control and work things and make things happen to our will. We can earn money and make things happen and we forget God is the one that's sovereign. We've been told and taught often so little the majesty and greatness of the sovereignty of God that when we get in here and we really start to flesh out what does it look like for God to be sovereign, even over our salvation, we are so inundated with our own sovereignty and so, so shallow in the sovereignty of God that we will quickly and easily, if we're not careful, become very offended at the extent to which our God is sovereign. God's will, as we're talking about God's sovereignty, God's will, 
is a mystery never to be completely comprehended by us. So I know I sound like I am contradicting my whole gospel statement as I say that we'll never completely comprehend it, but it is still true. Like what Lloyd-Jones said, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said, if you ever feel tempted to say that God is not fair, I love this, he says, I advise you to put your hand with Job on your mouth and try to realize of whom you are speaking. You will be tempted to say that in the weeks to come. Paul is an apostle by the will of God. God ordained it. This means Paul teaching and his teaching of Christ is an expressed and explicit part of God's will. So what he's about to teach us about Jesus is, is God's sovereign will, God's plan. Now, follower Christ, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus. These words we are studying, just like Nehemiah, are the words of God. They're for our good. They're for our good. Even the parts that we may not understand or, or might rub us the wrong way, they're for our good. It is for our blessing, Paul will tell us later. What he means, I think, what Paul means to describe to us here is that all the promises made to Abraham have been given to us in Jesus Christ, and he's about to describe all the intricacies, maybe not all of them, but many of the intricacies of how God has fulfilled that promise to Abraham in Jesus Christ, and we are the beneficiaries of that great work. Why would we not explore the beauty of the gospel, right? Why would we not... Why do we not seek to apply it to our whole lives? Let's go back to Ephesians 1. I know, we've made real far progress so far. He says, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So this whole gospel means something for the whole life of a follower. This whole gospel that Paul, that's coming from God, that's the gospel of Jesus, so it's the will of God coming through the means of Jesus Christ, now being communicated to us through his teacher Paul, means something for the whole life of those who are faithful in Christ Jesus, those who are followers of Christ. This whole gospel that Paul is about to explain is for the encouragement and instruction of those whom God has rescued. Those who God has pulled out of darkness, rescued from hell, this all means something for all of life. So he's writing, he, he very clearly shows us who he's writing to in the terms of redeemed versus unredeemed. Those who have been rescued by God and those who have not. He is clearly writing to those who have been redeemed. Those God has rescued. He calls them saints. Paul is not talking about those whom the church has introduced or brought into sainthood as if they could. No, he's talking about those whom God has brought into sainthood through Jesus Christ. What does he mean by saint? What is he, what is he talk, calling them saints? What does it mean to be a saint? It's those who are set apart. Those who have been cleansed outwardly and cleansed inwardly cleansed from the guilt of sin and cleansed from the exclusion from the presence of God. 
If you're a follower of Jesus, you are a saint. If you've been rescued by the blood work of Jesus Christ, you are a saint. And that's what he's saying. You saints who are in Ephesus, those who have been set apart. I mean, think back to Leviticus. Think about, I mean, to the Old Testament, particularly Leviticus, as they're cleansing the temple and set, if something was to, if some earthen vessel was to get, uh, become unclean, they were to destroy it and break it. And, and, and if something of, made of, of a more precious metal, they, they were to wash it in certain ceremonial ways and to cleanse it. And, and what happens, God is setting these things apart for His holy use. He is taking these, these vessels and, 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 and these people and setting them apart to be His treasured possession. What is Paul saying? To you in Ephesus, whom God has, by the blood of His Son Jesus, taken you, rescued you, pulled you out of darkness, and set you apart for what reason? To be His treasured possessions, to give to, to, for Him to lavish His goodness upon, for Him to display His glory to the earth. He has set you apart for that, those of you who are faithful in Christ Jesus in the city of Ephesus. He's not writing this book, like these truths that we're getting ready to work through that are going to seem really difficult, that are going to seem really hard. He's not writing to a bunch of church leaders. He's not writing to pastors. He's not writing to some special smart people. He's addressing this to saints in Christ Jesus. These truths that are hard to understand have been given to the saints in Christ Jesus. Not to the clergy, not to the Pope, not to the church, to the church, like, you know what I'm saying, but to this church. To the church, the people who are redeemed in Christ. He has given them to you. You hear me, church? What he's getting ready to say, no matter how difficult it is, he's given this to you. He is saying this to you, to me. So he's given this to the redeemed in Ephesus, and he says to the faithful in Christ Jesus. What does this faithful in Christ Jesus mean? I think faithful in Christ Jesus means actively believing the truth concerning Jesus Christ. Actively believing the truth concerning Jesus Christ. I think we're getting into the idea here when he says those faithful. I think we're kind of getting, although not synonymous, but getting into the idea of abiding here. Abiding in Christ Jesus. Believing. Remaining in these truths. This is more than just having this little truth about Jesus that I believe, but a, an abiding in that, a being faithful in that truth. I don't want to flesh this out too much, but faithful, like faithful in such a way that it produces godly fruit. Like there's, there's we, we've taken faith, we've taken belief <coughs> And think that we can just kind of have this belief, but not actually do anything with it. No, the kind of we're talking about the kind of faithfulness where I I don't just understand intellectually that truth, but I abide in that truth. I'm faithful in that truth. 
Let's talk about this truth. What are they actively believing in? What are they faithful in Christ Jesus? What, are they, what does he mean by faithful in Christ Jesus? Faithful that he died. They believe in the truth that he died to pay the price for their sins. That he had came in the flesh. And, and he is the son of God. That he rose again on the third day. Just some of the basics that, that he would say, I believe Paul is implying here or, or referring to here, when he means the faithful in Christ Jesus. But this idea of faithful, what else does it entail? If we're talking about this abiding, remaining in, this continuing, actively believing this truth, this idea of faithful also has this, this, this word of faithful has this idea that you're reliable in the faith. That you're trustworthy in the faith. That you're dependable in the faith. That you're unshakable in the faith. That you're ready to defend the faith. This is who he's writing to. To those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So I just asked the question. I want to address two groups of people this morning. Those who are not sure whether or not they are follower of Jesus Christ. If you're not sure, I want to ask you this question. What do you have faith in? What do you have faith in? He says here to those who are Faithful in Christ, those who have active faith in the work of Jesus Christ. If, you're not a, if you don't have active faith in the work of Jesus Christ, what is your faith in? What each day brings assurance to your heart and mind that you will one day enjoy heaven and avoid hell? Here, Paul tells us, and he's getting ready to explain all this in these next few chapters, tells us that the only way to enjoy heaven, enjoy the presence of God, and avoid the lack of the presence of God, hell, is to be named among those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Those who repent of their sin, and I think chiefly the sin of faith in your own ability that you could make yourself right with God. And exchanging faith in my ability to make myself right with God to faith in God's ability through Jesus to make me right with God. That Jesus paid the price for your sin. I think we're called to repent of that, trusting in ourselves and trust in His work and surrender to Him as King. The other group, those of you who consider yourselves followers of Jesus in, that you're actively pursuing faith, you have an active faithfulness in Christ Jesus, how unshakable is your faith? How dependable is your faith? Are you actively believing the truth? Are you seeking to make the truth more robust, more thick, deep, life-changing? Would you be named among these people? Are the faithful in Christ Jesus. So what Paul is getting ready to instruct us on is what the whole gospel is 
and what whole life application of the gospel looks like. So he's getting ready to, to talk about this. What does it look like to be the faithful in Christ Jesus? He's getting ready to, to speak to these faithful in Christ Jesus about being faithful in Christ Jesus. And he's going to talk about the work God has done to make those faithful in Christ Jesus and then what the work of God does then produces in the life of those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. What the whole gospel is and what whole life living and application of the gospel looks like. I mean, think about it. We're about to embark, we already have embarked upon this glorious view of God's saving work of yours and my wretched soul. That's a marvelous work. Then we're going to think about how that rescuing work of God means to redeem the rest of your miserable life and mine as well. Like it would be such if it weren't for God. How marvelous, right? How marvelous. So here's our plight, right? Here's where we kind of come into this. So we have a partial gospel that we we need help thinking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have the old time gospel. Ask Jesus into your heart. Pray this prayer. Walk this aisle, right? Anybody ever seen that? Seen that? And then we have the man-centered gospel. God couldn't stand it without you. So come see all the good that you can get in Jesus. We need something more than that. There's God has something intended so much more for us than that. What we desperately need is for God to open our eyes to the beauty of the whole gospel. I understand that what we're talking about, this idea of whole gospel, whole life, is impossible apart from the work of God. This is where I'm kind of reaching in for the next few moments. I want to reach into the rest of Ephesians. This isn't going to come explicitly from verses 1 and 2. We desperately need God to open our eyes to the beauty of the whole gospel. Begins with who God is, understanding our depravity, our inability to save ourselves. God's work then in salvation and rescuing us. And then its impact then on all of life. So we desperately need God to open our eyes to the beauty of the whole gospel. Here's our other plight. We have a partial life understanding of the gospel. And we will all, listen, it don't matter how long you've been a Christian of Jesus, a follower of Jesus Christ, a Christian, you still have compartments of your life that the gospel has not invaded yet. Okay? A lot of them you probably just don't know about, or you know about, and you refuse to bring the gospel to bear on it. If you're a follower of Jesus, he'll get to those corners. He will. So be encouraged, but then also go, it might be painful, right? But he'll get there. If you're a child of his, he will. That encourages me. So we have this part. This is part of a Christian life, but this is, we, we need to think about, we think about this whole life idea. We need to think about taking captive every thought and making it obedient to Christ. So how does the gospel then take captive every thought? Certainly the gospel then sets our thinking free from the slavery of sin so that we can take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Don't need to get that right now. Just kind of looking ahead. Letting the gospel inform everything we do. This is 
We, this is our partial life understanding of the gospel. But what we desperately need, though, is God to open our eyes to the beauty of a whole life invaded by a whole gospel. A whole life invaded by a whole gospel. We need God to do this. This is something you and I can't do. Right? This is only something He can do. We need for our joy and for His glory, for Him to captivate our lives by His glorious gospel, instead of the gospel that we tend to surrender our lives to every day. These are the two things upon which we're going to hang everything again here in Ephesians. The whole gospel, whole life. Again, Paul, and this is very typical of Paul's writings. He will begin in the book, he'll talk about doctrine. Like he'll, he'll give us these truths about glorious God, and then he will flesh it out on what this looks like in a Christian's life. He seeks to show us the whole gospel and then its invasion upon all of life. And again, I want to flesh out a little bit more just for our kind of teasing of where we're headed. I want to encourage you with these three truths, these three things. These three things that I'm about to give you, these next three sub-sub points here, are basically what are going to be our three series as we work through the book of Ephesians. So series one, series two, series three, all underneath the bigger umbrella of whole gospel, whole life. The first one is this, I want to encourage you with this, enjoy his rescuing. As we think through this next series, enjoy God's work in rescuing. Enjoy God's redeeming work. Because God's rescued people. This is how he did it. In these few months, be captivated by God's glorious work in saving your wretched self. My wretched self. In verse 12 of chapter 1, Paul says this is all to the praise of His glory. All to the praise of His glory that He's done these things. Second one, be united in His rescuing. More specifically, be united with each other in His rescuing. Thinking of God's rescued people gathered. So the first one is, as we think about enjoying His rescuing, Paul's going to talk about how this gospel impacts our relationship with God. Now, he's going to, in the second part of the book, talk about this uniting of God's people and how the gospel impacts our relationship with each other. Church, our unity as a church should not be based upon preferences like dress code or how we do church. It should be centered on the unity, on having unity in doctrine, what we believe about God. And particularly and foundationally, our doctrine concerning salvation. This is a very key thing for us to have unity where we will be unified around we're unified as God brings our hearts and minds into alignment with that which is true about Him. That we should be unified upon. Who cares about the rest of this stuff? He says in verse, chapter 4, verse 13, He says, until we attain the unity of the faith. The third thing, third encouragement is, Go rescue then in His name. Go rescue then in His name. 
I think by the time most Christians get to chapter 6, they read chapter 6, particularly the passage on the whole armor of God, and they go, all right, i got the whole armor of God to protect me so that I can honker down and remain protected in the midst of all this stuff going on. But what does Paul say at the end? Inside, as thinking about the whole armor of God, he gets to verse 19, he says, And also for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Why would God continue to protect us and keep us on this earth and not just whisk us away to heaven as soon as, as soon as we are redeemed? He leaves us here on this earth, gives us the armor of God to persevere in so that we would have the words in our mouth and our mouths to speak boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. The whole armor of God is not just so that we could be protected. So that we would persevere in proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. So go rescue in his name. So this we're talking about the relationship, not with God, not with the redeemed, but with the unredeemed, the people God has not yet redeemed. Guys, God has not displayed his infinite wisdom and salvation just to save your tail from a bit of fire. He's done this marvelous work so that the gospel of Jesus Christ might redeem all men. Amen? Amen. Verse 2. You gotta know, I love going slowly through this stuff. Like, I just... I'm loving this. I'm eating it up. It was fun studying this week, too. Verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. I'm not going to say as much on verse 2. Because Paul's about to flesh all of that grace and peace to you out. Okay? As we get into 3, verse 3 and 4 and 5, he's going to flesh this out. But I want you to see, see here right now, okay? Paul is not just saying, chill, hope things go well for you all. Like grace, you know, peace. He's not doing that. Alright? Paul's saying a lot more. But for Paul, grace and peace mean something. I like what Lloyd-Jones said. Which, by the way, you're going to hear lots of Lloyd-Jones I bought his eight volumes on the uh, on, uh, book of Ephesians. I'm enjoying reading those. Um, Rusty has offered to help read, as we do with, with all series, to help read and share resources as we're working through a book. And, and he's like, I'll read through the Lloyd-Jones ones for you. And I'm like, oh, man, no, I want to read those ones, you know. So anyways, whether coming from me, coming from me, you're going to hear lots of Lloyd-Jones. But he says this, on speaking of grace and peace, he says, grace is the beginning of our faith. Peace is the end of our faith. And I just thought, oh my gosh. Like, wow. Leave it to the doctor. Grace, he was a doctor, by the way. A medical doctor. Grace is the beginning of our faith. I know you want to get all those down, right? Peace is the end of our faith. I think Paul has it in mind here. Grace to you. What I'm getting ready to talk to you is grace. What it's resulted in is peace.
What good would grace be if it didn't result in peace with God? I feel good for a few moments. The Ephesian believers have experienced, those who are faithful in Christ Jesus, that God has done this redeeming work we're about to talk about, have experienced the grace and the peace that come by the way of the Father's work through Jesus Christ. So just as we just think about grace, just very briefly here, the unmerited favor of God, it's a really hard word actually to define. That doesn't, I don't even think that does it justice. It's a major theme in this book, particularly in these first two chapters. You're going to see grace this, grace this, grace this, grace this. Grace that He would send His Son to die on the cross for their sins and our sins. I think Paul undoubtedly has in his mind here the glorious inheritance. The fact that God has chosen to rescue some people to His grace and by His grace. And then peace. What peace? What, What peace is Paul talking about? This is peace. Just inner peace, uh, uh, you know, or this tranquility of life that, that our world is searching for. No, he's talking about eternal peace with the Father through the rescuing work of Jesus. What does he call us in verse 2? Because I think, not verse 2, but chapter 2, you can read this later, but he calls us sons of disobedience and children of wrath. Does that sound like you're at peace with God? No, right? So what does Paul have in mind when he's saying peace to you? I think Paul has in mind that you're no longer sons of disobedience, that you are no longer children of wrath, that you are no longer enemies of God, and you are now at peace with the Father. I think that's what Paul has in mind. Those of you who are faithful in Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. And where does that come from? It comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from a prayer you prayed. It doesn't come from the right church that you went to. It comes from the grace of God where He grants you peace through the work of Jesus Christ. Paul's great prayer for the Ephesians was this. Look at chapter 1, verse 18. Look ahead with me. He says, Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. This is what we need. This is what we desperately need. What we need is to understand. We need to grasp and we need to love. This is what we need to believe. And what is it that Paul then says we need to have our hearts enlightened to? Look at me going on in verse 18 that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. What we need to understand, what we need to grasp, what we need to have the eyes of our heart enlightened to is the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. And that the whole gospel of Jesus Christ would invade the whole of your life. Not only for this age, but also for the age to come. Amen?
Let's pray. Father, I pray that your gospel would, would shine clearly in our hearts. That, Father, that we, that you would continue to remove the veil that is on our eyes and help us to see another facet today, another facet next week, another, another piece to this brilliant diamond we call the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you called the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, that you'd give us eyes to see, that you'd open our hearts to see, that we would walk away worshiping you, Father, today more than we ever have before. And see your truth displayed in these words. And that we would mind deeply and apply thoroughly and depend wholly. <clears throat> Father, give us the grace to see your work in these pages. Father, give us then the grace to also apply them in every area of our lives as we move forward in this text, Father. I pray that as we reflect on these truths this week, that we, by the power of your, of your Holy Spirit, would apply these truths. That we'd see where we're not living faithfully. We're not believing actively. And Father, we would then pray and beg your Holy Spirit to, to give us the grace and power to, to live in a way that honors you, Father. Knowing ultimately that we cannot make ourselves right before you. As we're getting ready to study, we are hopeless in that. But Father, we have all the hope in the world because of our Savior Jesus Christ. Because He did it. And He made a way that we could live faithfully for You. He set us free. Father, let us worship You in light of these truths this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.